Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Before we begin, just a quick message. Uh, We have a new book called Understanding Viruses by Finding Genius. Uh, You can go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius to look at it. Uh, It's a compilation of interviews with uh, 25 top virologists asking them tough questions and uh, their speculative answers. So I think it's a good read. Uh, Check it out again on Amazon by typing in Finding Genius. Today, my guest is uh, David Good. He's a group leader, part of junior faculty at Peter McCallum Cancer Center. And we're going to talk about his work. So, David, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, tell me about your uh, your research. What's it involved? So, I am a computational biologist. So, that means my job is to analyze large, complex data sets related to cancer. And my group uses sort of evolutionary approaches to study cancer um, because cancer is a dynamic system. It's always evolving. It's always changing. Um, Cancer cells have to be very adaptable. They face a lot of environmental challenges as the tumors form and grow. And then, and then certainly during um, treatment, they're treated with drugs or radiotherapy. They have to adapt very quickly to survive under those conditions. And so we study these evolutionary processes, how will they help tumors grow, how they help them adapt with a particular focus on um, the evolution of drug resistance. That is the ways that cancer cells come up with to, to sort of beat the drugs that are used to treat them and continue to grow even after therapy. Well, do you think that cancer is a separate life form with its own homeostatic drive and agency or you know, how would you characterize it? 
Yeah, I I wouldn't characterize it exactly as that, but I think that that framework can actually can be applied in many ways. Cancer cells are kind of like rogue cells in a way. They kind of break away from the constraints that are placed on most cells in terms of in terms of their growth and their spread. So so kind of in a normal functioning multicellular organism like a human, um, there has to be a lot of coordination and cooperation between cells. You can't have cells just growing wherever and whenever they want to. But cancer cells, they kind of break the rules, if you will, and, and they start just growing and dividing kind of according to their own schedule. And of course, this is very damaging to the host. So you kind of have this competition, if you will, between the the cancer cells who who want to spread and divide and, and make as many copies of themselves as they can and and the host who's got all these mechanisms to try to stop cancer cells from doing that. Well, do you think cancer cells act independently or they act in concert, at least in the context of, let's say, a tumor or a metastasis? Well, I think that what, what they do is they get some autonomy over their own growth and proliferation so that they kind of ignore the normal signals from other tissues, other cells in the body that would be telling them, you know, now you should stop growing. They, they kind of ignore those and they just come up with their own means to, to keep going. But they certainly, you know, they're not entirely independent. There's obvious, there's a lot of evidence that tumor cells interact with the other cells around them in the microenvironment and that they manipulate those cells to help them, you know, help the tumor cells grow. And then that also different sets of cells within the tumor, different clones of cells within the tumor will actually compete, but also cooperate. So there's a lot of signaling that goes on between cancer cells and the cells in their environment and between different kinds of cancer cells within the same tumor. So when you talk about evolutionary effects, are you talking about just random mutation, natural selection, or is the evolution look different for cancer? So a lot of the principles of of Darwinian evolution certainly apply to cancer, that you um, usually cancer is is initiated by some sort of um, genetic mutation. Mutations are occurring in all of our cells all the time as they grow and divide. Um, but if one of those mutations occurs in a gene that is important for controlling cellular growth, then that can then lead to the initiation of a tumor by sort of damaging one of the controls that turning off a control that may tell that cell to stop growing or, or the mutation may turn on a gene that, that tells the cell to start growing and dividing when it shouldn't. So there's there's certainly an element of, of Darwinian selection to that in that you have these mutations that occur and they they can allow these cells to grow faster than the cells around them. And then so those cells are, are basically have a selective advantage in that they can out, outgrow their neighbors. So and then, you know, as the cell, as the tumor continues to grow, it's kind of like a snowball effect, more and more mutations will accumulate. And there'll be, again, selection acting on those mutations that will make some of these tumor cells, you know, grow even faster than the other tumor cells. And so those ones will have an advantage and eventually dominate the population. So it's like a, a really dynamic system that's that's always changing so you know after chemo treatment it seems like tumors uh, definitely become a lot more aggressive do you think that's just random mutation or do you think it's deliberate adaptation in response to a stressor yeah so that's an interesting question and i think there's sort of two two possibilities that are not necessarily mutually exclusive in every case and i think what i discussed about the sort of accumulation of genetic mutations and selection for cells carrying mutations that are advantageous that help them grow faster is is kind of the traditional view of cancer evolution and, and still a very valid view. And, and um, in the case of therapy, you can certainly have selection for cells that are more aggressive. They're the ones that are more likely maybe to survive the therapy because they, they can grow faster, they can adapt more quickly. But um, there's also accumulating evidence now that there are sort of non-genetic 
non-genetic mechanisms of evolution in cancer. And these can sometimes be triggered by stresses placed upon the cancer cells by the environment, such as, you know, such as chemotherapy and other drugs. And that you're actually, the drugs sort of have this unintended side effect of actually kind of making the tumors more plastic, more adaptable, and more aggressive by kind of inducing them to switch on different genes and switch off other genes that actually make them make them grow faster and make them kind of better able to withstand the effects of the drug. So I think there's a bit of both. There's selection for pre-existing genetic changes, but then there are also changes that are induced by therapy that actually do make the tumor cells more aggressive. So what are you trying to do? Are you trying to model how tumors grow or their response to chemo or what are you trying to do? Yeah, we do. We do some of that. We do. Um, one of the things my lab is doing is trying to uh, sort of computational simulations of tumor evolution under different conditions to try to figure out what makes some tumors more aggressive than others. And because, you know, when you when you get a sample from a patient, you can do sort of DNA sequencing, RNA sequencing, you can look at what mutations it has, what genes are switched on in that tumor. But that's just kind of one snapshot in time. There's all these things that happened before that patient showed up in the clinic. And then there's all these things that are going to happen afterwards uh, as that patient goes through surgery and treatment and so forth. And so to try to get a, a big you know, picture of how that whole process is working, we can use mathematical models and actually simulate the growth of tumors in the computer and, and see how the different um, balance between the different mutations between the different clonal populations and that tumor changes over time before and after therapy. Okay. I mean, have you looked at a, a tumor 3D and mapped the heterogeneity? So maybe you can use a computer model to track it back to how it started or how many cells it started from. Have you tried that? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, we are we are working on ways to actually match our, our computational simulations to actual data. And um, we haven't been able to sort of use sort of 3D sort of heterogeneity data to do that yet. We're basically based that on the kind of genetic profiles of the tumors. So the numbers of mutations they have, how common those mutations are, we can use that then to estimate sort of how many different clonal populations there are and how common each of those populations are. And then we can see, okay, of all the sort of thousands of simulations that we've run, which one looks most similar to that? How how are you doing that? Are you doing single cell sequencing or how are you determining what mutations there are and how many there are? So we actually just do that with with what's called um, whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing. So it's not single cells. You basically take all the cells. You just take a sample of a tumor and take the DNA and and that's going to that DNA is going to be representative of a mix of cells in that tumor. So you're going to kind of get the, I guess, the genetic profiles of the most common cells in that tumor. The single cell technologies, I think, are really powerful, though. And that's something we are looking to move into where you can actually profile individual cells. And so then you know with kind of more precision, at least in that, in that sample of the tumor that you took, which clones were there and what their you know, exact frequencies are. And you can detect sort of more rare clones. So one of the limitations of current techniques is that a clone 
clonal population, you know, a mutation has to be present in about five to 10% of the cells. Otherwise you won't know it's there. So that's well, again, if you know how they're distributed throughout the tumor, I think that would give you a lot more information instead of just, yeah. oh, there's 8% of this and 10% of that. If you look how they're distributed, if it's radially, radially, or if there's a pattern to it, what would that tell you? Well, the, yeah, the spatial patterns are very powerful in that they tell you kind of a little bit more about the history of the tumor and that there's sort of different regions of the tumor may actually be genetically different and they might be molecularly different. And that I think has big implications for drug resistance because one part of the tumor might actually respond really well to the drug and and sort of shrink and die off, but another part of it may be completely resistant and that could then that'll grow back. And and one of the issues is when you have a patient's tumor, which could be, you know, quite big, you only you only take when you take a biopsy, you only get a really small piece of that that tumor. And so you're there's all this information about the surrounding tumor that you don't know about and that can sort of mislead you in terms of thinking about what that tumor actually looks like genetically and what it's like molecularly. And you might actually miss some important clues about a better way to treat that patient. What do you mean? Like what would throw you off? What would you see that's that's not reality? Well, let's say 20% of the tumor carries a mutation that you know would make it resistant to the drug that you're giving that patient. But that 20% is up in the sort of upper left corner and you take a piece of the tumor from the bottom right corner and you sequence that, then you would have no idea that that mutation was there. So that's one of the things that I think is really so good. What does what histology do right now? What does pathology and histology look at? Do they do that or how do they sample? Typically, is that even relevant to what you do? Yeah, so typically they um, what uh, what's done is is that you basically take you know a, sort of a, a thin piece of tissue from the patient at biopsy, and that's basically like a sort of a, little, a needle biopsy usually, so a very thin sort of slice, and that's that's often what we get to use for our studies. Or sometimes we can get pieces of tissue from surgery, and, and but you sort of again just sort of get a, a random like a, a random slice, and and then the rest of it will go for pathology, and they'll actually make slices of the rest of the tumor and they'll preserve it. But then, you you know, for research, we get sort of one of the the, the pieces to work with. We uh, have done some studies in prostate cancer where we actually managed to get preserved sections of a whole prostate. So, so when patients, some cases of prostate cancer, when it's particularly aggressive and spreads throughout the prostate, they'll just remove the whole prostate from the patient. It's called a prostatectomy. And we could actually sample uh, 17 different regions within that prostatectomy sample. And we could see that there were clear genetic differences uh, across the different regions of that prostate. And that's in line with a lot of other studies. So as you were alluding to that, that kind of spatial heterogeneity is, is prevalent in cancer and is actually very important to understand. And so we're working towards ways to do that. Okay. So what, what, I mean, what would, what would be your way of doing it again? Is it single cell sequencing, but then you have the problem of, you know, how many do you sequence mm-hmm. hundreds, thousands, millions, what, what are your thoughts on how to do this in a better way? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so I think, um, again, single-cell sequencing, you get better picture of the heterogeneity, but you lose the spatial information. You don't know where those cells came from in the tumor. Um, so I think one of the sort of strategies that's important to think about when using patient samples is to try to sample multiple regions. Like I said, there's also um, new technologies for spatial profiling. There's something called spatial transcriptomics, where you can actually look at what genes are expressed in different regions of the tumor. So instead of the sort of typical approach where you take the whole piece of tissue and kind of mix it all up, you actually take a slice of it. And there's a technology that will actually allow you to sequence genes in sort of different 
parts of that tumor. And so that way you can kind of map that oh, this section of the tumor has got these genes switched on, this section of the tumor has got these other genes switched on. And so we're looking to use that, those technologies, um, to particularly to study prostate cancer, where we know there are these molecular differences between different regions of the the prostate tumor. So, I mean, what, what is this going to result in? Different chemotherapy protocols or what, what do you hope to figure out by seeing this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think partly it's it's sort of discovery driven and that we don't know what we don't know yet. So, so I think that will be, um, you know, that always will uncover new information. And from that, you can get new, new ideas about treatment. I think you know, one of the things that I'm certainly interested in is, is why do these tumors become resistant? What changes have to happen before and, and during therapy? and after therapy that make them change from a drug sensitive to a drug resistant state. And I think perhaps if we can look at things in a spatial perspective and we get a better picture of the heterogeneity and also the microenvironment around the tumor, we might give us some clues that we might see sort of cells in transition, or we might see differences between regions that, that tell us, oh, okay, that's why the tumor was able to come back because you know, in part of the tumor, there were these changes that then you know it became more common after the after the therapy. So see things like you maybe mutations that are in one region. Well then then when the, the tumor comes back, those mutations are in every single cell or, or the same thing with certain gene expression patterns. Maybe they're only one little part of the tumor has that has these genes turned on. But when you sequence it again after it's returned in the patient, you see these all the genes are those genes are turned in on all the cells. So that can give us important clues about those evolutionary processes and and how they're occurring and how that's leading to drug resistance. And then if we know that, then perhaps we can come up with better ways to treat patients that will prevent the tumors from becoming resistant uh, in the first place. But how are you going to see this? What, what method are you going to use, you think? Um, so you mean in terms of the uh, uh, sort of analytical methods or the analytical approaches? Yeah, there's, there's a trade-off between single cell and just like, you know, wide swath of it. What do you do? You do multiple swaths? You do, yeah. you know... Multiple yeah. spots and then a couple single cells in each area. Like what, what would be a protocol that you would think would help you see in more detail what's actually going on? I think for my work, it's really most important is to kind of have the, the sampling at different time points. So, so before and after therapy, so you can make that those comparisons. And it's, as I mentioned, harder to do in patients necessarily. So well, yeah, why is it hard? Why, why can't you ask for uh, a resection of all, um, you know, Prostate tumors from a given hospital, would they not give them to you or is it like, what would happen with that? You can get that if you, yeah, this it takes some time and expense. It's more about the, the over time though. I mean, if you have a patient, it's, it's kind of hard to ask them to come in for a biopsy every, every month, you know, you get poked every month. So what we do is we try to use model systems in the laboratory that are actually based on patient tumors. So one of the things that, that I work on very with, closely with collaborators is something called patient-derived xenografts, where we can actually take a piece of a tumor from surgery and then put it into, into a mouse and grow it inside a mouse. And so these are, are specially bred mice that have very weakened immune systems, so they won't regret, reject the graft. And in that way, we can actually keep those tumors alive, if you will, in the lab in what we call an in vivo environment. So not in a dish, but actually inside a, a growing organism. The, the mouse, and we can see then how those tumors change over time as we as we kind of passage them from mouse to mouse. We can see how they respond to different kinds of drugs. And so that way we can get a much higher resolution picture of, of how those tumors are evolving than we can if we um, just rely on patient samples alone. Have you done this yet or, or no? Yeah, yeah, we're doing this right now. We have a big collection of, of um, different kinds of really aggressive prostate cancer uh, growing in, in, our, in our mice and these xenografts. And we've started sampling them at different points in time. 
to look at their how their genetic profiles and their transcriptomic profiles change. We've started doing experiments where you have them in a mouse with that is producing androgen. So, so prostate cancer relies on, on androgen hormones to grow, and that's that's mostly testosterone. And the big treatment for the main treatment for prostate cancer is to starve them of the testosterone. So it's something called androgen deprivation therapy that reduces the amount of testosterone in the system and thereby kind of slows the tumors down. But they always seem to find a way around it. They always seem to find a way to continue to grow, even in the absence of testosterone. And so we can simulate this process in the mice. We can put the tumor in a mouse and actually supplement it with human testosterone. So we know it has lots of testosterone and then we can do what's called castration on another mouse. So we can take the tumor, put it in another mouse and then deplete the testosterone in that mouse. And in that way, we can see how does the tumor change going from an environment that has lots of testosterone to one that, that doesn't. And, uh, and so we're doing those types of experiments and we're also um, now going to do experiments where we look at how do these tumors change when you give them chemotherapy. So we're going to give them a commonly used chemotherapy called carboplatin, and we can see how they change before and after. And um, for those experiments... Are you, are, you, are you just looking for genetic changes, or are you looking at epigenetics and microbiome and extracellular vesicles and all that stuff? It sounds like it's, so, it's you know, genetics and that's it, or, or no? Genetics and transcriptomics, for the for the most part, for the is what we're looking at at the moment. Yeah, we would love to do a lot more stuff. It's just... Um, sort of practical limitations and financial limitations on what we can do right now. But, but we, you know, we're, we're building towards getting more complete picture. And this is actually where we're actively using single cell RNA sequencing, which you mentioned before, where we actually looking, looking for differences between cells in the same tumor in terms of what genes they're expressing, what genes are turned on or off. And that way we can actually identify specific populations of cells that have that change in response to androgen deprivation or in response to chemotherapy. Okay, so so far from the transcriptomics and the genetic changes, you know, have you gotten data back yet on how tumors change and you know after various chemo treatments and over time? Yes, we're getting um, we've gotten some data back. I you know we haven't gone into it into a lot of detail, so there's there's um, mm-hmm. I can just sort of share with you sort of the high level things. I mean, the, a lot of the things we see in our tumors are you know, you get changes in the androgen receptor signaling in the absence of chemotherapy. So that androgen receptor is like a key gene for, for growth in, tu- in prostate tumors. Right? So it's activated in the presence of testosterone. And the tumors that will find ways to, to keep that signaling going, even when the testosterone is gone. And another interesting phenomenon we see is that sometimes tumor, uh, prostate tumors become independent of androgen receptor signaling, and they actually change the way they look and they change their molecular properties quite dramatically. And they, what's called, they do something called transdifferentiation, where they actually change into a different cell type. They change into from sort of an epithelial cell type to a, a neuroendocrine cell type. And that's a very interesting process. It's, it's these tumors actually becoming something that's very, very different in response to therapy. And this allows them then to survive and adapt. So we can actually look at our models and kind of catch cells in the act of doing this. We can find populations that are in between the adenocarcinoma cell type they were before and the neuroendocrine cell type that they're becoming. Yeah, why would they become the neuroendocrine cell type? What what good does that do? Yeah. What what abilities does it confer on the tumor? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think there's a lot of research going on in that area. I think one of the key things is that by moving into that neuroendocrine cell type, though they don't need testosterone anymore. So, so that's kind of like an escape mechanism. But why they do it that particular way is is not entirely clear. But it's in line with sort of a, another sort of emerging viewpoint in cancer biology that tumor cells have this kind of 
what they call plasticity. So they have this ability to change forms there, you know, whereas sort of like a skin cell or a lung cell or a bone cell will remain a skin cell, lung cell, bone cell, the tumor cells kind of go back into more of a stem-like stem cell-like state. And that allows them then to sort of shift, shift their molecular profiles, shift their transcriptional profiles to become different things. And, and to this makes them more adaptable. So a drug comes and, you know, maybe some of the cells are susceptible, but if they can quickly switch on different genes and become something else, then they, then they, that's a mechanism for them to survive treatment. What about metastases in prostate cancer versus the primaries? What do they look like? It varies again from case to case. I can't claim to be an expert at this point in metastatic prostate cancer, but you know, you see a variety of different resistance mechanisms, but the main things again are they either change androgen receptor signaling by making lots of copies of the androgen receptor gene or mutating that gene, or they transdifferentiate into this neuroendocrine form. So there seem to be those two main pathways that the tumor cells can go down. But if you get, if you compare primaries versus metastases, maybe you'll see different things happening, different paths yeah. that'll shed light on what's going on. Yep. Yep. And that's definitely something we're interested in doing. And we have um, in our xenograph collections, we have matched uh, primary sam- samples from the primary p- tumor of a patient and then samples from the metastasis from that patient, you know, when they returned after relapsing, you know, a, a year or two later. And so we can actually look at those in the lab and compare them and see uh, what's changed. How are they different? Um, and we've done this for one patient in detail so far. And um, it's interesting in that the genetic profile didn't seem to change that much between the primary metastasis, but the metastatic tumor had all these different genes that it would switch on, but only in the castrate host, so only when there was no testosterone. So when there was testosterone, the, the tumors had some differences, but they had more differences when the testosterone was gone in, and there were more genes, kind of more growth pathways turned on in the metastasis. So again, this is sort of pointing to the cells in the metastasis for being more adaptable and being able to switch on more types of genes to help them survive. Is the goal of therapy or is it just understanding? I mean, what, what do you hope to understand about these tumors? And then what, what therapy would that lead to? Or is this more just, you know, you're happy with the understanding of what's going on with them? Well, we want to move beyond that eventually, but I think there's a lot of complexities to understand first before we can, um, you know, definitively say a particular therapy would work. But the idea is to yeah, see what's different about the metastases in the primary and then to identify potential drugs that we could test and a good thing about our system is that because we have those tumors growing in the mice, we can actually you know, test drugs immediately in the same tumor. So if we identify something that looks like a molecular vulnerability in the metastasis, then we can actually go ahead and test that with a specific drug if the drug exists to target that pathway. Are you going to be allowed to test any drugs? Or Because from what I understand, the, the standard of care has to be done first through sections and chemo, and then things can only happen kind of after that, but not in the absence of it. Yeah, so that's... Uh, that's true for patients, but not in the lab, we have these tumors growing in the mice. So we can actually, we can test, you know, all different kinds of drugs because uh, it's an experimental setup, right? So if you're not actually testing in patients, you can, you have more leeway to use different compounds, even sort of experimental drugs that aren't used in the clinic yet. Yeah, but if you do that and you get a result, are you going to be able to surface it? Or again, are you going to have to only do a clinical trial in which the standard of care is used first? I guess I, I I couldn't give you a detailed answer on that. I mean, the sort of part of the standard research process is you try things out in, in the lab first and um, on cells and, and on mice. And then when something works, you then look into 
carrying it forward into the clinic to test in humans. And, you know, first you've got to show that it's safe to use in humans. And then if it is, then you test it in cohorts of patients where some get the standard of care and some get the standard of or get the new treatment. So um, it's all part of the process. We're kind of in the, I guess, discovery phase, you could say, trying to find better drugs for prostate cancer because the current therapies don't work that well. What about the prostate-specific antigen test? How does that correlate with uh, mutations and you know the, the morphology and the mutation heterogeneity in the tumor? Um, I, I couldn't actually really speak to that very knowledgeably about PSA. I know that it's used to monitor basically disease progression in prostate cancer, but it, that it has its, its, its limitations. Um, my research is really more around looking at these evolutionary processes and this plasticity and, um, as we call it, this ability of tumor cells to, to sort of switch states. And, um, and so one of the, the reasons that we think that tumor cells can become more plastic is actually that they kind of regress from multicellularity into a more unicellular state, which is another sort of big topic of research in my group. So is the epithelial to mesenchymal transition just another stage in this dedifferentiation? Like if you compare that process to just, you know, inside of a tumor itself, the dedifferentiation is one more marked than the other. Are they similar or is one more than the other? Uh, you're saying are there differences in the level of differentiation in cells within the same tumor? Yeah, like, you know, if a tumor is preparing to... Uh, you know, to send out cells to create metastases. Yeah. From what I understand, I may be wrong. They, they undergo, a, again, a, like a, you know, a transition where they de-differentiate a bit. Then they're able to slough off and move around and, you know, become metastases. But does that happen to all cells in a tumor or just certain ones that appear to be uh, destined to go out and travel? And are there spots in the tumor that the de-differentiation, like if you were to characterize the level and intensity of de-differentiation in a tumor, what would you see? Has anyone looked at that? So I'm not sure if that exact study has been done. I think, though, you would see a lot of heterogeneity in the level of dedifferentiation. And you certainly will, you can see in certain types of tumors, maybe cells, some cells will be in, be undergoing the epithelial mesenchymal transition and others won't. Uh, and that you'll have various sort of, can have sort of various stages of, of dedifferentiation within the same tumor. And I would certainly you know, propose that the cells that are less differentiated, they've kind of gone further back towards a more, stem-like or more adaptable state would probably be the ones that would be more likely to to metastasize because again they would have that ability to be more adaptable to new environments which you think right if this tumor cell is going to metastasize let's go in the bloodstream which is quite a can be quite a harsh environment for it and then it has to go to a different tissue type and colonize that so it really has to be very very robust very resilient first of all and then it has to be very adaptable it has to be quick you know quickly be able to quickly adapt and change to its new environment. So well, I how wonder, do they do like, that? You know, if, a, um, if a cancer metastasizes, the microenvironment of the metastases would be a lot more alien and harsh than yeah. the primary. Yeah. So I wonder if there's less of a redifferentiation when the cells arrive. You know, I don't, I don't even know how you characterize it, but I guess just like characterizing yeah. genetic heterogeneity, how do you even characterize the degree of differentiation or dedifferentiation? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of the ways my lab does it is to actually look at what we call signatures of loss of multicellularity. And we kind of have a model where the tumor cells kind of transition from being more of a differentiated multicellular type of cell to something that resembles more a unicellular organism like a bacteria or yeast. And we've, we can study this process by looking at how old the genes are that the tumors are expressing. So, so we can compare the sequence of uh, human genes to 
hundreds of other species and we can identify genes that you know are shared with very primitive single-celled organisms like you know like bacteria like, like yeast you know genes that are very very ancient and then we can also identify genes you know that are only shared with other mammals and those are much more recently evolved and and what we see is that tumor cells they, they shut off the more recently evolved genes and they they upregulate or they increase their expression of very very ancient genes that are conserved with bacteria and um, single-celled eukaryotes and also genes that are what we call early metazoan. So they're genes that evolved early on in the process of, of multicellularity. So our hypothesis is that tumor cells are kind of, their transcriptomes are kind of being changed. They kind of rewire them to move back into something that is more of like a, a more primitive, more adaptable cell type. Something that's a little bit more like a unicellular organism. And so this then allows them to become more plastic, to become more adaptable and actually become more robust and handle the stresses in their environment better. Yeah, it's kind of strange that they do that. Do you know if, if metastases, again, they, they if you looked at it, again, in terms of uh, the origin of these genes that are being turned on, I don't know, what are the most ancient pathways look like? Or when yeah. does the uh, does the regression or the atavism happen most strongly? Does it happen in metastases or in tumors that have been treated with chemo? Like, yeah. where does it yeah, so happen it, most? Yeah, yeah, so we're, we're looking into that. We, um, we do see that. When you compare tumors at early stages of progression, so low-grade tumors are kind of benign neoplasms that have not yet sort of fully become tumors, and you compare them to high-grade tumors, very aggressive, um, faster-growing tumors, that when you compare these sort of early tumors to later-stage tumors, you see the later-stage tumors have turned on many more of these ancient genes, many more of these highly conserved genes than the early-stage tumors. So that suggests as the tumors are progressing, they're shifting more and more into more of a, a unicellular-like state. They're, they're losing features of multicellularity, becoming kind of more unicellular-like, and that this may be helping them um, progress and adapt. And so we're actually now following up by trying to look at what is the profile look for metastatic samples or what does the profile look uh, like after treatment. And so that's, that's work that we've just initiated. But I would guess that this process of sort of shifting towards more of a, a unicellular-like state would, would continue and be enhanced in, the, in these metastatic tumors. Has anyone tried to, um, I don't know if you could do this, but, you know, take two tumors and seed one of them with cells from a metastasis or, you know, take two tumors, treat one with chemo and then see their progression, but seed the untreated one with, with cells from the treated one and see if that alters the trajectory of that one. So, you know, the whole reason I'm asking is maybe there's some cell to cell signaling going on that governs the, uh, the rest of the tumor. Part of it's instructing the rest to differentiate or to do other things yeah yeah that's a that's an interesting idea there there are some there have been some really fascinating studies conducted where they have done something similar to what i think you're suggesting where they take different tumor clones so so different tumor cells from the the same cell line so they're actually from you know they have the same origins but they have different been engineered to have different types of mutations and they when they, they can put those cells into mice, they do the xenografting like, like we do with the patient samples. They can take those tumor cells and put them into mice and watch how they grow. And they found that there's often cases where when you put two different types of cells, two, two, you know, two, two types of tumor cells that have different mutations, they grow better together than they do on their own. So there certainly is some sort of cooperation or maybe it's the competition or something that actually helps them become more aggressive and, and, and more metastatic when there are a greater diversity of clones there. And so, you know, why is that? I don't know if that sometimes maybe they're making factors that, that help each other out. Maybe this is sort of more intense selection when you have more comp- clones competing for the same 
resources. So it's kind of that iron sharpens iron idea. Um, but there's, there's those dynamics are definitely, they definitely matter the uh, level of heterogeneity within the tumor and which clones are there and, and, and the different proportions. So there's some, yeah, some interesting studies done, particularly in breast cancer and in lung cancer that, that are trying to look at those questions. Okay. Well, very good. Dave, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, I guess they can go to a website at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center. And, uh, and we have sort of an overview of the work we're doing there and, and links to some of our papers. And um, that's probably a good place to go for information. Yeah. And um, if you want to get in touch, all my, my details are there. Okay. Very good. Dave, thanks for coming. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a good call. Well, thanks. Thanks for your time too, Richard. And um, yeah, glad for the opportunity to uh, tell you about my research. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.